1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn how to cultivate love, peace, and compassion in a world full of pain and restlessness. My first guest is Dr. Ravi Chandra. Let's join the conversation. He is a psychiatrist, writer, and a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. His book, Face Buddha, Transcendence in the Age of Social Networks, is his first nonfiction debut, and the winner of the 2017 Nautilus Silver Book Award for Religion and Spirituality of Eastern Thought. He's a friend of the show, and I'm absolutely delighted to have you back, Robbie. Thanks for joining me.
2: Thanks, Lisa. I really appreciate your inviting me.
1: Well, you and I hit it off the first time you came to the show, and we agreed. It must have been uh, close to a year ago that you'd come back and we'd talk about social media and politics. (laughs) So here we are.
2: (laughs) Yes, with the flames rising around
1: us. Yes, Rome (laughs) is burning or, you know, we're sort of in the sad United State of America.
2: Right. Well, I mean, I think, you know, obviously, there are so many traumas that are surfacing right now. And, uh, uh, and I think uh, our political situation is just uh, putting salt on the wound or fuel on the fire, etc. It, it, it's so toxic. Uh, and social media, of course, can become very toxic. And I anticipate it becoming more toxic as the year continues towards the election cycle.
1: Talk a little bit about the toxicity of social media, because I think we can all agree that the internet and sort of the digisphere can be used for the greater good, but most often it's not.
2: Well, there's so many levels of that. First of all, you know, as we know, Twitter recently stopped doing political ads, Facebook, has kind of uh, some uh, some hand waving reasons why they're continuing political ads, which have I've seen so many examples of outright lies and uh, just disparaging comments, etc., being targeted to uh, voters who might be susceptible to these kinds of messages. So I, I'm I'm certainly worried that uh, that the campaigns and perhaps third parties are going to stir the pot and turn us against each other and, and the messages. Of unity and of clear reasoning will not get through. And then, of course, you know, in our own news feed, depending on our, well, the algorithm basically favors the more, uh, in quote unquote, engaging uh posts which are often the most controversial the negative etc because that's what gets the the angry uh emojis and the comments etc going and so i think that the medium itself on facebook in particular tends to uh aggravate and uh just like twitter become an auxiliary amygdala just going straight to the primitive parts of our brain uh our survival uh, brains uh, where we uh, go into fight, flight, and freeze and so so all of these uh these emotions get stirred up uh and we react, but yet we don't often enough engage our higher centers, which are about relationship long term planning kindness uh and compassion um, and so that 's the challenge I think for each of us as we engage on social media, but in our lives in general. I think it's easier in a real world relationship to have those kind of long-term planning and compassion uh, neurons and that, that part of our frontal cortex engage. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge online. I hear you.
1: And I, I love what you just called a social media, the auxiliary amygdala. And it's kind of true, right? Like it yeah. can fire us up in a nanosecond where we lose all reason, accountability, judgment, mm-hmm. morality. It's just gone. Poof. We see something that fires us up and we've lost it.
2: Right. It's it's called uh, uh, cyber disinhibition, but I call it cyber dysregulation, you know, this this kind of just a, a total uh, change of our personalities, which can happen online. And um, I think, you know, I've certainly tried to, you know, to, to avoid that kind of political furor, but it happens. And then, you know, I'm, of course, I'm concerned for my friends who are in distress, but I, I always feel it's hard to, um, you know, as the Buddha said, better than a thousand hollow words is. Is one word that brings peace and it's hard to do that online to really be that voice of peace etc because uh it's just you know it, just just typing text and images onto a screen does not capture our humanity does not transmit our humanity um so
1: i would argue that it's stimulating you know the the very act of the tapping and the clicking is stimulating to the brain, right? It's activating us. It is not soothing us.
2: Sure exactly, exactly. um I mean, I think you know it's great if you can uh, uh throw in a cat video or or uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know kitty, humor, kitty. <laughs> humor I, yeah humor I think is great that's one of my favorite parts of engaging on social media is just to uh enjoy other people's humor and share share a joke myself, um, but when it gets into distressing, disturbing issues, the issues of trauma uh it it, it we we tend to get into. Uh, the blame cycle, uh, blame, shame, scapegoating, etc., and away from related uh, understanding and relationship um, and interdependent identity.
1: Well, we talk about being traumatized by the political climate and by what's going on in the news and whatever is external, you know, whatever is out there that is happening, that gives us a sense of feeling traumatized and overwhelmed and unable to really manage, you know, what we're seeing and feeling. How do you counsel people to find a way to deal with this? Because, I mean, I have clients that will say that, you know, there are times when they're so overwhelmed they can't function.
2: Right. Well, certainly, a media diet is important to to uh, to remember uh, what uh, brings you back to yourself. And on my website, facebuddha.co, there's a mindfulness-based look at uh, uh, your own social media use, and you can kind of see how uh, and kind of chart how social media is affecting you, what it's like when you take a break, and then you can make Rational decisions about how you want to engage. Um, yeah. You also
1: have a uh, lecture series available. I want to just give a shout out to that because I, I love your work. And on your website, ravichandramd.com, um, within your portfolio, there is a viewable series where you talk about this and more.
2: Yes, that's right. It was an eight-week lecture series that I did covering uh, compassion in difficult times, self-compassion, Asian-American psychology, uh, narcissism in the American psyche and relatedness in the American psyche, and technology and psychology.
1: Hmm. Let's talk a moment about the Declaration of Independence. Let's go way back to the founding fathers and invisible mothers because they were there and talk a little bit about our national identity and the intent of your belief and mine, I think, because we're, we're, we share similar views of the Declaration of Independence.
2: Right, I, I think the Declaration of Independence is such an inspiring document and, and I think it it was revolutionary then and it's it 's revolutionary now. you know this idea that uh the Creator, whatever you uh, imagine that to be, has uh, uh, given us equality and the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness so I think that 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 idea of equality, even though At the time of the founding, that was limited to white wealthy property owners, male property owners. So it was not, uh, it was not true then. Um, but we've done, I think, you know, that over the course of history, Americans have tried to make this more and more true. Um, and I, I think that's such a powerful concept that no matter what uh, what station we have in life, whatever uh, you know, whatever we're doing, et cetera. There's a underlying common humanity and equality that I think it's so important to connect to as human beings, and not uh, because you know I think other in the last 50 years, America has become particularly individualistic and narcissistic, and therefore competitive and antagonistic, and I think all of these. Uh, emotions of social comparison, jealousy, antagonism, envy, and so forth are are so much part of our uh, psychic makeup uh, and especially with social media and I think we just have to f- kind of undo that and really connect to our common humanity and equality to really find that happiness and maybe even you know to really have a a deep national discussion about what happiness is. Uh, and how we can achieve it. I think, again, in the last 50 years or so, uh, or certainly since post-war prosperity, uh, happiness has been equated with getting what you want, yeah. uh, materially. And I think that's a totally wrong and that's totally unsupported by research as well.
1: Oh, well, we can go on and on and on about that. And I think most importantly is the recognition that when we get what we want or what we think we want, right? It's only, um, a letdown, right? Because then we're, we're, what? we're seeking that next thing, that next adrenaline rush in pursuit of what it is that we think we want or need. And it's externally referenced.
2: Right, exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I talk about uh, happiness a lot with my patients. And, you know, there's so many definitions. I think certainly meeting goals is is important, having a sense of meaning or purpose in life, yes. um, having a certain basic financial security. Uh, yes, that's important. But beyond that, it, it doesn't add to happiness. Um, but I think, you know, for me and, and for my patients who are going through distress, uh, I think I define happiness as an increasing capacity to deal with distress and difficult emotions. Um, so having that recognition that one can uh, get through the difficult times, I think that's another definition of happiness that we have to kind of feed into our system.
1: I agree with you. I also think that happiness in my own experience and in working with clients is also the absence of suffering. That when we can get ourself regulated to a place where we recognize, yes, suffering is part of the human condition, and it Mm -hmm. will not impede my happiness, I just choose not to perceive the suffering as anything more than it is.
2: Right, and maybe even you know in the ideal circumstance to treat it our difficulties as a kind of treasure that we can use to to really build ourselves and, and uh, grow with the experience, so that that idea of uh, post traumatic growth I think is important um, but suffering suffering has been a great teacher for me, and i mean we 're going through a lot of trauma and suffering right now nationally, um, but uh, in, in some way, I think uh, it can. Uh, kind of uh take us back to what 's really important, and certainly it 's what 's done that for me i 've started teaching compassion and self compassion courses kind of doubling down on what I think is important and missing from the national conversation, which is about relationship and our connection with others and, and our interdependence uh, and and I think this is founded on compassion so so in that sense, the suffering of of the uh, national times has really brought out. I think what's important for me.
1: I agree. Let's go take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Ravi Chandra to learn more about Ravi and his beautiful work. Please visit Ravi Chandra MD.com on Twitter at going to peace. And it's the number two on Facebook. We are going to check out Ravi Chandra, psychiatrist and writer and on Instagram, It's Robbie Chandra, M.D. Here comes that pause. We'll be right back. And that is a
0: promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services.
1: Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we're continuing the conversation with Dr. Ravi Chandra learning how to cultivate love, peace, and compassion in a world full of pain and restlessness. Ravi, we have so much to cover and there's so little time, but you've given us some some tools and some insight into our human brains and and how we are stimulated by social media and our devices and you talk a little bit about um the declaration of independence and going back to the foundation of america and some of those qualities of a kinder more just and moral time let's talk a little bit about the pursuit of happiness and you gave us some some good basis for human happiness that comes from having meaning in our lives and you talk a little bit about the necessity of living in a state of united interdependence.
2: That's right. I mean, I think, you know, we all come into the world with a common humanity as human beings. And then from that, there's some kind of, you know, we develop relationships and often some kind of disconnection, or wound or trauma, you know, could be based on our identities, could be based on uh, things that happen to us, et cetera. So, so there's that uh, trauma or wound that we have of disconnection. And from that, I think there's a kind of a parallel process that develops. On the one side, um, there's the kind of cycle of trauma, which is uh, about uh, really trying to, I think, you know, in, in its, to be most generous, to try and create control and safety for the traumatized individual. So it could be about avoiding. Uh, trauma uh the traumatic triggers uh could be about blame and shame and scapegoating, pushing away those things that we find uh dangerous um and uh and that's uh that's really um that really keeps going on and on and and it could lead to anxiety depression, just a complete uh involution um, but a lot of toxicity can happen out of that and then parallel processing with that there's the development of relationship and a cultivation of connection and compassion for self and other and i think both of both of those things are going on in most wounded or traumatized people and i think you know diffusing the trauma cycle uh which you know, trying to win antagonistically in some way in, in, you know, in in the extreme forms, Um, splitting the world into good and bad. I mean, that has to, I think, be diffused and uh, to get to a really a felt experience of common humanity and interdependent identity. So, um, so I think, you know, I think uh, just noticing the trauma cycles as they come up and uh working with them with mindfulness, compassion and relationship in order to get to that more peaceful state um, where you're aware of what traumatizes, but you're not overwhelmed by it.
1: Let's talk a little bit about connecting with the other because we are in such a polarized state that we often think, well, if this person is not like me, if their if their thought process and their values seemingly are not like mine. I don't want to be around them. I don't want to be near them. They're bad. They're wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the ways to better manage when we have those feelings is to go the opposite way, to lean in and get curious and ask questions and discover that we are not different from the other.
2: Absolutely. Curiosity and understanding are so important. Uh, um, You know, I understand why, you know, people get, you know, either hostile or angry when uh, when when ideas or people they don't uh they don't relate to uh uh or or people who have traumatized them uh show up um that's understandable because again we're trying to create control and safety um but you know i think where does our our real sense of safety comes from i think is that sense of connection so you're right exactly uh opening to those moments with curiosity. Oh, and and trying to encourage empathy in others as well uh, is is so important.
1: It's funny, I I got a call last week to do a radio tour for a network whose name shall remain nameless for the sake of this discussion. But their views in general are very dissimilar to mine. Um, And I thought, you know, what an opportunity to go and talk about human happiness and well-being in a time of turmoil, and ask questions to see where I'm more alike that other person than unlike them. And it was a very satisfying experience because I was skeptical in doing it. And I was glad that I did it.
2: Yeah, that's so great. Uh, what was your experience like, you know, being there with people who were different or, or had different ideas?
1: Well, I, one of the um, hosts was really a Bible thumper. So that Mm -hmm. was a bit different than my worldview. And he kept wanting me to talk about going to God as the only pathway to happiness. And I wasn't willing to go there. I was willing to say the research says that people who have a spiritual practice, whether it is religion or knitting, tend to experience greater joy in their life because they're Mm -hmm. connected to something greater than themselves.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. He he wasn't happy with me because he wanted he wanted God to be part of the conversation. And I just kept citing the research
2: that's really hard. I mean, I have a hard time talking to people who are very certain in their beliefs um, and uh it doesn't leave a lot of room for uh for communication and so yes. I'm, I so appreciate your your willingness to do that um, uh, that's That's another thing I think we gotta figure out is how to uh get out of our own. Hard-headed certainties and and encourage other people to be more fluid and related. It's it's kind of that uh, a way for them I think to have control and power in a situation. Um, and it can feel very strong, but it's so unrelated and it makes everyone else feel uh, disconnected. I think so. Uh, so I think you know we've got to all work on not. You know, being so hard-headed, I think, and being open and like you said before uh, being curious uh, and try to understand and have empathy for people who uh, have different uh, uh identities or, or different uh, ideas,
1: well, I think when we start to see that that person whose views are so much different than our own, when we start to see them as as a human being that wants safety, security, prosperity, good health. Good family, good connection; those are all of the things that each of us want. That is available to us from from our own effort, and not some political um, doctrine.
2: Absolutely, I I totally agree. Um, You know, but I also think that uh, the thing that we've obviously got to we're we're at peak narcissism right now um, and, and peak self-centeredness. I mean, this is according to research and just what's happening in our polarized political environment. And I think all the religions really are about overcoming self-centeredness. At, at the core of every religion, there's that uh, quality. Uh, and uh, so I think we we do have to you know realize certainty while it does provide this this false sense of of safety is also very self centered and you know I think you know that we you know that's another thing we've got to kind of transcend uh, uh, to to be able to be uh, to hold our opinions with less attachment I think uh, is so important for uh, for for being non self centered.
1: Yeah, less less attachment to outcome and desire and more of the neutral observer or the witness, right? And then be able to harness our reactivity to these things as they happen.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, um, But it's so great that you had these conversations. Um, I wish I could have – my lecture series was one way to kind of – Have a conversation in some sense with uh, with people who maybe I'm not meeting in person, but uh, but I can give give some information to and uh, uh, hopefully start some dialogue uh, along the way.
1: These are important conversations and they're and they're great connectors. They're great conversation starters, you know, to see ourselves in the other. And perhaps that mollifies some of this aggression that that a lot of us are harboring.
2: Right. I mean, I'm so fortunate you're, you're running this great radio show and I'm fortunate to be a therapist. So I'm, you know, I'm having deep conversations with, uh, uh, dozens of people a week, you know, so it's, uh, it's just so transformative and it brings you down to that that sense of you know deepens that sense of caring about another person uh being open to them and you know i'm so grateful for my profession uh that that i'm allow i'm able to do that um and i think we we all you know uh do better uh in conversation uh yeah. and we need to we need to have more of those.
1: We do. We need to keep talking and use good reason, get out of the blame game. I mean, I'm I'm reiterating some of your own beautiful talking points that, you know, learn to identify, you write with our own own work and work with those difficult emotions with mindfulness, compassion and relationship. This is what you want to teach us.
2: Yeah. And yeah, going back to that, uh, that founding document, uh, the Declaration of Independence and the pursuit of happiness, I think what's happened with individualism in the last 50 years is that we think if we're not happy, then something must be wrong. You know, <laughs> yes. and particularly that someone's to blame. You know, I'm not happy, so it must be someone's fault. I think that's so common, um, especially when we're stressed. That can happen to any of us. But it's something to overcome. It's like, you know, how can we take responsibility for our own happiness and also be a source of happiness for others um, and, and get out of the blame game? Exactly. I, yeah. I think it's you know, such an antagonistic way to live one's life.
1: Be a joy generator, you know, get out there and be, like you say, be the source of happiness for yourself, for others. And, you know, this is what we, you know, we always talk about it being an inside job and that might sound very trite, that being happiness, but really we, it, it, we should be the ones that know ourselves the most and therefore know how to make ourselves joyful.
2: Absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> right. Right. And, and, you know, we, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? And, and that's, that's in all religions as well. And if we're a source of happiness for others, if we're giving, if we're generous, uh, you get that back. Yeah. Um, and it feels good to to be generous in spirit and materially, et cetera. Um, so I, I think these are all, you know, I- important uh, religious principles that I, I think no religion would disagree with. Um, uh, but we just got to, I think, act out. I mean, it's also research based as well. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot of evidence for uh, what Dr. Keltner Uh, says that we're born to be good. Uh, That's his book of the same name. So, so, you know, we we can bring out these qualities.
1: Ravi, thanks for your generosity in giving your time and hanging out with me today. To learn more about the work of Dr. Ravi Chandra, please visit ravichandramd.com. On Twitter at Going to Peace, and again, the two in Going to Peace is the number. On Facebook, that page is Ravi Chandra, psychiatrist and writer and on Instagram, Ravi Chandra, MD. You can also check out his lecture series that is available on his website, which I mentioned, I'll say it again, Ravi Chandra MD.com. And the book is face Buddha transcendence in the age of social networks. Ravi, always a delight. We're going to have to come back and hang out again and talk about the political climate in a few months.
2: Sounds good. I look forward to that. Me
0: too. Here comes the break.
1: and we are back talking about cu- the cultivation of love, peace and compassion in a world full of pain and restlessness. My next guest is Lama Palden Droma. She is the author of Love on Every Breath, a licensed psychotherapist, spiritual teacher and coach. She has studied Buddhism in the Himalayas with some of the most preeminent Tibetan masters of the 20th century, following a traditional 3-year retreat under his guidance. Kalu Rinpoche authorized her to become one of his first Western lamas. She subsequently founded the Sukha City Foundation, a Tibetan Buddhist teaching center in Fairfax, California. And she's here today, and I'm so eager to learn about her story and her work. Lama Paulden, thanks for joining us on the show.
3: My pleasure.
1: I would love to hear your story. I'm actually waiting with bated breath to hear your story and how you came to be a llama.
3: Ah, okay. Well, I I grew up in, in Marin County, Northern California, the Bay Area, quite a liberal place. And I was always very interested in spiritual things. My earliest memories of that go back to three years old. And then I was raised Episcopalian, very liberal, and then... When I got into my teens, I really started doing a lot more inquiry and studying Gandhi and all kinds of different religions and starting to learn meditation, and that went on in my 20s. I became really more serious about that, doing a lot of yoga every day, sitting zazen, studying mystical Christianity and Sufism and all of these kinds of things, pursuing A path towards spiritual unity, divine union, and really unfolding more uh, into the, I don't know what you'd say, like into awakened presence, pure being. And then about the age of 25, I began praying to meet my teacher. I figured I really needed a primary teacher. And a Sufi friend sort of dragged me off, convinced me after talking to me for hours to come with him to San Francisco across the bridge to meet a Tibetan Lama, hear him speak. And we got there. And as soon as I saw this Lama, who was about in his early 70s at the time, I just knew he was my teacher. So that was 42 years ago, and that has never really wavered. Uh, Definitely, he's my teacher. He's passed on now. But I had the incredible opportunity of studying with him, uh, mainly in the Himalayas for 12 years off and on, and then doing the three-year retreat under his guidance. And I had longed to do retreat for many years, and then it turned out he was the main retreat master among the Tibetans in the 20th century. The first one to establish long retreats after they had to leave Tibet. And so those two things came together and I was able to do three-year retreat, which I did up on Salt Spring Island in British Columbia at a retreat center my teacher has up there. And that was extremely hard work, very challenging, but the most rewarding and fulfilling thing I've ever done with my time in this life. And afterwards, about a year later, my teacher uh, authorized me as a llama. I'd never really thought about teaching or wanted to, but then after that, people started asking me to teach. And then eventually about Ten years later I founded a Tibetan Buddhist Center here in Marin County. So that's that's my story. And part of the time I was studying in the Himalayas or Himalayas with him and other great Tibetan masters. I also had the good fortune of living in Bhutan for four years, which this was the late seventies, early eighties. It was so remote there were almost no Westerners that had ever been there. But That was also an incredible experience. It was unbelievably relaxing there for me and very nourishing spiritually.
1: Let me ask you how this worked with your sort of Western life as a licensed psychotherapist and as a coach. You have blended these two very different kinds of technology.
3: Yes, actually, I became a therapist after three-year retreat. I went back to grad school a few years after three-year retreat and started then doing psychotherapy, spiritual coaching, counseling, et cetera. So it was really because growing up in Marin as a teenager in the late 60s, I made a real determination inside myself around age 15, 16, that the psyche... The spirit and the body were all super important in the journey of transformation and the spiritual path. So I was always, I've always been committed to the joining and working with all three of those. So, you know, hence a lot of yoga, a lot of that kind of thing, plus spiritual work, plus in depth psychological work, uh, both inside of myself and then. You know, in grad school studying, of course, and then uh, in working with others. So it's really been very seamless joining those together. And I think when we work on all aspects of ourself, then transformation happens much more quickly.
1: You call the meditation that you teach in the book, as well as the book's name, Love on Every Breath. Describe the type of meditation and how you came up with the name.
3: Okay, yeah. So this meditation I'm teaching in the book, which I'm calling Love on Every Breath, is a very extraordinary form of a practice called Tonglen in Tibetan, which has to do with Taking in the suffering of the world, having it transform in the heart chakra, and then being sent out as healing energy and awakened love and wisdom. And so that's done on the breath in the practice. And besides the fact that this practice actually consciously you can breathe in your own suffering of your own human self... Have it transformed through a sense of awakened presence in the heart. And of course, the book goes into a lot of detail about how to do this. And then in that transformation, the suffering, the pain is transformed. Uh, as I said, into healing energy, awakened energy, but it's also transformed into white light, and this light, is uh, you breathe that out. So it's actually the meditation is done on the in-breath and out-breath, hence the name. And, you know, it's fine to do it not coordinated with the breath, but that's the traditional way of doing it. And a lot of us are taking in suffering all the time or feeling our own suffering or other people's suffering, and it just kind of gets stuck inside of us. And this practice is a very profound way to actually allow that to be transformed and liberated in our hearts and then manifest back out as um, an energy that is um, very helpful for ourselves and others.
1: So for somebody who is unfamiliar with meditation, but very familiar with suffering, (laughs) how might you guide them to become aware of the breath and the skill set necessary to apply love to the
3: breath? Good question. Yeah, well, the book goes step by step. There's eight steps, and then each one I explain, you know, in depth. So the first... Which really relates to your question of becoming aware of the breath. The first is what I'm calling resting in open awareness. And that's where, you know, again and again, we let go of thoughts and we just rest in our direct experience. What's happening right now in this moment? And obviously, a lot of times, Thoughts come up about the past, thoughts come up about the future, and we're constantly kind of evaluating or judging the present moment. And so again and again, we let go of all that. We let go of evaluating, judging past and future thoughts, and instead open really wholeheartedly to what's here, what we're experiencing right here in this moment, in our felt sensation, in in the you know, awareness of what's inside and outside of us. And in that slowing down and really paying attention and focusing on the here and now, that's where we then become aware of our breath. And the breath is an amazingly powerful tool for awakening and for healing, for transformation. It's an amazing tool. For example, uh, in psychotherapy, if somebody's experiencing something painful, uh, really working on some old stuck, you know, trauma or pain or um, confusion, just simply breathing into that with awareness is very transformative and liberating. And so the breath in uh, medita- a lot of meditation practices and in yogic practices is really valuable for uh, working with the process of liberation
1: what's interesting is the breath is a a natural anti-anxietal if we use it
3: exactly (laughs) exactly you know that's what i found too like if i feel a little bit anxious i really bring my breath down to my abdomen yeah and consciously breathe, and it's very grounding, and it, it does. It helps relieve anxiety. The breath and then working with the breath consciously is really amazing.
1: We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Lama Pauldendroma. To learn more about her work, please visit www.lamapalden.org On Twitter, you can find her at Lama Paulden and on Facebook, that page is Lama. Paulden Drolma. The book we're speaking of today and the practice that we are talking about is Love on Every Breath. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise.
0: Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more.
1: Yeah Welcome back to the show. We're continuing the conversation with Lama Pauldrin Droma, talking about how to cultivate love, peace, and compassion in a world full of pain and restlessness. So Lama Pauldrin, let's go back to the breath and the challenge of the breath in being alive. Because many of us, when we are impacted by stress or anxiety or life's events, we hold the breath, the life force that is so necessary For our well-being, we do the opposite.
3: Yes. Yeah, I think it's an unconscious habit pattern of trying of we think if we hold our breath, we won't have to feel, you know, but it's a very unconscious process. And in meditation practice, we can begin to be conscious of our breath and work with it consciously, skillfully. We can learn to, you know, even out the breath, to stay present with the breath And the breath is an amazing tool to help bring the mind-body together into harmony.
1: And the use of breath, you know, proper breath work or good breath work will also help reduce cortisol in the body.
3: Mm, I didn't realize that. Interesting
1: right? So you're being able to manage adrenaline, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, I'm going to speak for myself and have a hunch that uh, that our listeners might uh from time to time experience anxiety and stress and the worry and that sort of stimulates the body's fight or flight system and the breath and the meditation practice helps cool it down.
3: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. There's something about the combination of awareness and breath when those are joined, or we could say attention and breath, that is really amazing to, like you're saying, to relieve anxiety, to calm our whole system down, you know, just to settle and ground. Yeah.
1: Talk about love for a moment, because the the choice of words for the name of the book and the practice you know, to me, sounds like the application of love to the places that hurt.
3: Exactly, exactly. And Tibetan Buddhism, there's two main aspects to the path in terms of Tibetan Buddhism and the way they talk about the spiritual path. And one is the cultivation of wisdom, and one is the cultivation of love and compassion. So love, in this sense, is really... And what I'm talking about in the book are two things, learning to really open to and love oneself, to realize that all beings are are worthy of love, including ourselves, and to really, through uh, kindness and compassion, to open more and more to actually loving ourselves and likewise with others. And Not, you know, it's very important, those people that are close to us in our life, that's very precious. And also within Buddhist practice, we have the um, motivation and intention to open our hearts to all beings. You know, nothing to do with excusing behavior, but simply to open to all peoples in their equality, in their worthiness as human beings, and to engender compassion and loving kindness for for everybody's suffering and struggles. And through that to allow our innate loving kindness and compassion to blossom.
1: And therein lies the rub for many people because they will say, oh, yes, I'm a loving person, I'm a kind person. And then you mentioned or they mentioned somebody who they believe has betrayed them or perhaps has perpetrated a trespass against them, or someone yes. they love, and they sort of write that out of their heart. No, no, I can't do it for that person. And I think this is where the the practice comes in with this, because that's the challenge, to do it for that person.
3: Exactly, and I have a whole section in the book on that, like working with difficult people in terms of this kind of meditation. Now, first of all, this is why... It's so important to cultivate self-love first. And in the ancient practice, that is the step before cultivating it for others. So when we cultivate compassion and, and, and love for ourselves, we open to our own wounding, our own pain and work with healing that with, with our innate loving kindness and that is a whole transformational process, and usually you know we recommend doing that for some months some time in your meditation uh, before trying to tackle difficult people or challenging people people that are hard to feel love for and once we've really worked more deeply with our own pain and trauma then and that as you know, may require psychotherapy as well as meditation and This is a process. I mean, that obviously can take years, but we can also work with the meditation practice alongside and work with the self-love. And then when we start working with others in our meditation of breathing in where they are, their suffering, having it transform through this powerful light of awakened awareness in the heart, And then go back to them as healing energy and love. We start with the people that are, that we naturally feel close to, naturally feel love for. And over time, build up that muscle of the heart and include people that, you know, we really feel neutral about. And then eventually when we've really gone through all of that, we turn to the difficult people. And in a sense, we realize that their behavior may be really destructive or unwholesome, and we do not care for their behavior at all. But as a human being, they are trying to be happy in the best way they can. And they may be going about that in completely screwed up ways, but at the core, they're trying to be happy and they're very confused about how to go about that. And in that way, we can begin to feel compassion for them. And then we can begin to have a sense of we hope that this ignorance clears, this confusion clears, and that they're able to pursue happiness in a way that's much more wholesome. And so in that way, we can move toward actually having loving kindness for those people that are really difficult. And it, as I mentioned, it hasn't, it's in no way condoning their actions, and it's in no way saying, that we have to have an association with these people that we have to hang out with them. But in the heart, we're working on transforming our bitterness, our grudges, you know, into loving kindness.
1: I have a, an example of this. Some months ago, I had a woman, a client at a center that I uh, work at and I had done a meta meditation in, in one of the groups and she had asked permission from one of the staff to contact me after. She said she had something really pressing that she wanted to tell me. So um, I said it was okay to give her my number and she called and she said, I have to tell you the most amazing thing happened right in the meditation when you said to bring to mind somebody with who I have put out of my heart. Those were the mm. words she used and that was the the, the meditation. M- my mother called me the phone vibrated and I did not know who it was but it was in my pocket and I just let it sit and after I went and saw that it was my mother that called me just at that moment and I have not had any connection with her for three years wow wow and she realized her power at that moment right the power of this process
3: yes yes Yes. And that's, that's amazing. And that is part of this love on every breath practice that when we work through our, our, you know, issues inside of ourselves and come to more of a loving place and also let go of some of the stuff we're holding on other people, it opens up the space for them to show up differently. Yeah. In, in our lives. Yes. And And amazing things can happen.
1: Amazing things can happen. And that's not to say that the relationship gets repaired with these people, you know.
3: Not necessarily, although the door maybe is open. Yes.
1: But it, it serves our healing and expansion of our own consciousness and awareness as well.
3: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I wanted
1: to ask you to define love. because. People define it in so many different ways, but the intention of love on every breath means what?
3: That's a huge question, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Yes. In the book, I talk about different kinds of love, you know, and we're all familiar with romantic love. We're familiar with the love like a parent has for a child or a platonic for a friend or maybe a sibling. So, all of these kinds of love are, you know, very important for us as human beings. And and at the core of that is what in Buddhism is seen as part of our essential true nature. which is, And research is starting to prove this now, that we have this innate kindness and care for others. And so that's what... You know, research is starting to point out that there is this innate loving kindness, that innately we do care about others. And in this sense of, of the spiritual, we're cultivating what we could call like a universal love that includes ourselves and all beings.
1: As you are speaking, the word reverence comes to mind. And I'm thinking, OK, it replaced the word reverence for love, you know, reverence um, mm-hmm. on every breath.
3: Mm-hmm. It's a little different. That's a good distinction, actually, because I definitely, I mean, reverence is a beautiful quality. The love is a little bit more active in a sense, like love on every breath is giving out the love. So reverence in a way is like an internal experience. And in the sense of this love on every breath, there's the opening into and then the sending out. So it's a very active process of engaging with others, engaging with our felt experience from a place of love and meeting our experience with love, meeting others with love.
1: As an action, as a, as yes. a, as a verb.
3: Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah.
1: Well, you have been an absolute joy. And delight. The book we're speaking of today is Love on Every Breath. The author is my guest, Lama Paulden Drolma. To learn more about Lama Paulden's work, please visit org. On Twitter, you can find her at Lama Paulden and on Facebook, Lama Paulden Drolma. Thank you so much for joining me.
3: Thank you, Lisa. It's been a pleasure.
1: Likewise. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Ravi Chandra and Lama Drolma. wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your
0: day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio. KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.